Hello and welcome to the Home Assistant Podcast. My name is Phil and joining me as usual, I've got Rohan. Hey, Rohan. Hey. And joining me today, another fellow Aussie, we've got Tony. Hey, Tony. Hello, everyone. This episode is sponsored by Home Assistant Cloud by Navacasa. Easily and securely access your local Home Assistant instance remotely for a small monthly fee that also supports the Home Assistant project. The configuration is done by the user interface, so there's no fiddling with router settings, SSL certificates, or any YAML. Uh, so, Tony, you're from Queensland. That's correct. Yeah, nice. A few Queenslanders have come on the podcast, so yeah, a lot of home automation enthusiasts up there. Yeah, I think so. The uh, We get a fair bit of um, response back on the uh, the various forums I'm a member of, and I'm surprised how many people are from Queensland. Mm. Well, thanks for taking the time to come on. We're going to pick your brains in a minute about your awesome setup as well. Yeah, but before we do, I think uh, it's going to be a big episode today, Rohan, because, of course, it's October, which means Hacktoberfest has kicked off. Yep, that means everybody's doing everything. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? So it's live for 2019, uh, and Home Assistant is, of course, participating. So the first 50,000 developers who register on hacktoberfest.digitalocean.com and make five pull requests before the end of October may be eligible to receive a free T-shirt. I know I'll be working to get my uh, third T-shirt in a row, I think. Nice. For Home Assistant, you can contribute directly either through new components or you can even help out by adding or improving the documentation on the Home Assistant website because the Home Assistant website is all part of a GitHub repo. So if you have been uh, struggling to find out ways to help Home Assistant, this month is a good way to give something back and get something in return for free. Yeah, that's awesome. Also, something else uh, that's uh, happening is uh, there's a State of the Union for 2019. Uh, so if we remember, we saw one of these earlier, uh, and ING are once again hosting the uh, Home Assistant State of the Union, which will be in Amsterdam on November 13th. So interestingly, I think within 24 hours, that the event already reached capacity. Yeah, I think they had like 100 seats or something. Yeah, exactly. So hopefully this will be recorded or live streamed somewhere. So that'll be neat. Yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so as we said, Hacktoberfest is here. So Rohan, version 1.0, right? Almost, almost, not quite, <laughs> not quite. No, so 0.100 has landed. And as we're aware, Paul has said previously on one of our episodes, you know, they're not going to go 1.0, it's going to be 0.100. So here we are, 0.100 as they move towards that road of getting to version 1.0. And there's actually a lot of features in here that we can actually see moving over, uh, getting closer and closer to a 1.0 release. I was going to say, I still, I still once in a while see uh, people posting, oh, uh, 0.99 is here, therefore next one's going to be 1.0. It, it's not. Yeah, it's, yeah no, Sorry. it's not it. <laughs> so the first big feature for this release is uh, around the Google Assistant for uh, Nabucasa subscribers so you can now uh, have your home assistant instant report states of your entities back through to the google assistant so this means you can now use uh, the google uh, home app to create i think they're called uh, routines in google assistant mm -hmm. and so basically you know as you know if a light turns on in home assistant that state can then be pushed up to the Google Assistant, and you may have Google Assistant then carry out some actions in the cloud for you. It's a similar feature that's been uh, that was added to the Amazon Echo a few releases ago. So yeah, that's cool to see Google Assistant getting that as well. Also, Dudes Imaging Processing Support. So Dudes, which is basically stands for Dedicated Open Object Detection Service. So Dudes. 
It's It's designed to run as a Docker container, uh, which lets you process uh, images to detect objects as stuff like people, furniture, similar to TensorFlow. We had a we had a pretty in-depth episode about that a while ago now, actually. Yeah. Um, so, so it works pretty similarly to that. As a Docker user, I appreciate that this can be like containerized and run on a remote system that may be beefier than a yeah. Pi, right? So that's really cool. Yeah, exactly. If you're an iZone climate user uh, or using the custom component for iZone, that's now been moved to an official integration in Home Assistant. So you can scrap the custom component and put it in your configuration YAML file permanently. It is here to stay. So Good work on everyone testing that. Kytera. So we support uh, devices and sensors from a company called Kytera. One of those devices seems to be called a laser egg. And why, I don't know. Uh, but basically, <laughs> it's a Wi-Fi sensor that detects gases and chemicals uh, in the air inside your house. So I think it's a cool name, laser egg. But Right. Uh, sounds like it's going to shoot something. Yeah, I, I definitely have a mental picture of what it is, and I don't think that actually corresponds <laughs> to what the product actually does. So, <laughs> I, I was thinking of your cat getting fried. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, for users of uh, the of people interested in travel time information, uh, there is now a new travel com- time component. It's called the Here Travel Time Sensor. And they're basically a freemium service, so you can get 250,000 transactions a month. Uh, it does require an API key. So think of this, you know, you put in your coordinates, you know, how long is it going to take me to get to work this morning? So as an alternative to the Waze travel time or the Google Maps travel time sensor. So if you prefer another, you don't want, maybe you don't want Google to know your information, maybe you're a bit, you know, tinfoil about that. Here's another alternative product that you can use. Yeah. Well, it's good to see stuff that's not specifically around Google or, or whatever, right? So mm. it's nice that that's uh, just other services that have APIs around that too. So Smart Shades. So Soma, who's a Smart Shades manufacturer, they've got they've released a Raspberry Pi controller image. So basically what that means is similar to how you can stick Hazio on a Raspberry Pi, same way you can stick the controller for their Smart Shades software on a Raspberry Pi and use that as a control unit for blind. So you don't need a separate hub or anything like that that you have to go buy. If you have a Raspberry Pi sticking around, stick that in there and uh, and you can do that. So the integration talks to that, uh, that controller directly. So then you can start controlling uh, some of your Soma Smart Shades. So I actually have the Soma Smart Shades and I didn't buy their controller because they're actually selling their controller as a an additional product right and i remember when you know, all when they were advertising it, it was literally just a raspberry pi in their custom case and i was like well <laughs> i'm not going to spend you know a hundred dollars to buy a raspberry pi in a lockdown case yeah so clearly they weren't selling so now they're just giving away that image to the controller software for free which is really cool but since then i actually have some raspberry pis deployed around the home and I'm using a free GitHub library that's just a, a Soma to MQTT bridge, basically. Okay. It's worked okay. out really well, yeah. So nice. if you know if people don't want to, because I'm unsure if once you put this image on the Raspberry Pi, does that mean you can't you know install anything else on the Pi? Like are you right. locked out of it? So um, yeah, if there's if anyone's interested, ping me on Discord or something. I can send you the or find it on GitHub. There's lots of uh, Soma controls because it's all Bluetooth based open APIs anyway. Right. So, so were they, was, was the pre, like the sensor that, that they were commercially selling, was that literally a Raspberry Pi with the software on it? 
I, I, I get. Like you could tell by the pictures on their website that it was the Raspberry Pi just in their case because it had, you know, the Ethernet port, the four USBs, you know, the, yeah, the yeah, classic yeah, Raspberry yeah. Pi look, right? I looked at it like it didn't take me less, it took me less than a second to say that's a Raspberry Pi, right? <laughs> yeah, you, you know what? I To be honest, I don't know why more companies don't just do that, right? Like use yeah. y- use devices that exist already. Um, like, I mean, I understand why there's, there is some value to building your own hardware for around that, yeah. but... I mean, look at, uh, I mean, these guys are doing it and uh, who's the other, uh, Sonoff, right? They're just yes, using yes. standard ESP8266s and saying, hey, I'm going to stick my software on here. And and what's cool is, I mean, I, I, I there's a downside to it from a vendor perspective as well, which is, mm. you know, you have stuff like Tasmoda and stuff that comes out, which again, I don't know if they're a huge fan of, but yep. I think it's kind of cool. That you're that I can I have the ability to do that at least, right? Yeah, exactly. There is a version of Sonoff where they openly happy for you to uh, load custom firmware on it, but by default, though, most of these companies uh, uh, yeah don't like it. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with the um, never-ending game of cat and mouse between Arduino uh, slash ESP Home slash uh, Tasmoda people are uh, having with the two-year-based device, which, which are ESP8266. Mm. Um, in fact, I just purchased a, a, just a cheap um, wall plug for $20 and the latest version of mm-hmm. uh, two-year convert, which runs on a Raspberry Pi, detected it and upgraded. So it now runs Tasmoda. Yeah, I think even just this week, um, I saw on the Reddit there was you know people celebrating. Yes, you know it can uh, to convert can now be yeah. used without um, wirelessly again. So it definitely is. It sounds like you know a, a good description of a cat and mouse game of trying to catch up. Yeah, the problem they that companies like Two Year are having is because they're using a a vanilla off the shelf uh, Wi Fi chip, and these things are bulletproof. They're excellent. It, yeah. Everybody else has software for it, and at the end of the day, you can cr- if you you can crack them open and solder four wires and and program Tasmoda onto them manually. So I don't think it's a battle they're going to win anytime soon. Uh, another interesting uh, ESP eight two six six device I found was the um, the Sensibo Wi Fi uh, air conditioning controllers. I um I was on I was just browsing what was on connected to my Wi Fi, and I couldn't work out. I could see ESP8266 or, or whatever it is in my uh, ASUS router. I'm like, what is that? And the only thing I can work it out to be is the, the Sensibo controller. So I think there's a lot of yeah. commercial, you know, products that are using, you know, those sort of chipsets as well, which is good to see. There's a couple of different ways uh, people use uh, the chipsets. Uh, battery-operated stuff is generally just used as a modem. There's a secondary MCU that handles all the processing and that runs at a much lower uh, sleeping current than the A66, yep. which is uh, quite high. That's mm. interesting. Okay. Um, any If you buy a uh, two-year-based door sensor, motion sensor, it'll have two MCUs, and the 8266 is merely a, a, a modem. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah, I didn't realize that. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I, I did wish – I do wish more people use that kind of standard hardware, right? But, again, like I said, I get why they don't. Um just because of, I mean, proprietary, you're doing mm. whatever, and somebody's just flashing over 
whatever your value proposition is and making your making your product just generic right so i i, I get yeah. it but but it is uh it is i mean you can do some cool stuff like this right hey diy controllers and stuff so oh, i get it as well but the skeptic in me says it's one thing for the mar and pa users to buy a device and be happy using their cloud service but yeah. Uh, the fact that you know, these cloud services, even in China, cost money to run. And the more, device, more devices mm-hmm. connected to it, the more infrastructure is required. So, you know, the skeptic in me wants to know why are they expending so much energy trying to stop people from just taking their hardware and loading firmware on it, somebody else's firmware on it. Yeah. And even just this week, um, there was, uh, I think it's. Uh, maybe a German um, or Denmark or something like that. There was a, uh, I can't pronounce it, but it's Churofna Nello, which is a smart uh, doorbell. They are completely cloud-based and they've actually gone insolvent. Hmm. And they've been, they've announced uh, this week uh, that in 14 days, uh, their cloud is uh, going offline. And once that happens, uh, their Nello, uh, smart doorbell will stop working for everyone. So there's definitely costs involved and, and clearly, you know, it's it's not as cheap as, you know, every I think, you know, a lot of startups are thinking, oh yeah, we'll just make it cheap in the cloud, it's fine. But there are ongoing costs to to running that. And if you're not shipping product or offering subscription services, then, you know, eventually those costs will eat into your business. Yeah, and, and it depends on how heavy or light or whatever your service is, right? I mean if you're Typically, the way you you productize something would be that you're assuming you have a subscription cost that your subscription cost costs more than what you're actually paying, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so, and and I mean, in times like this, it's I, I wish companies like like this one would just open source their code. I mean, you're running out of business. Maybe maybe their ideas are reuse that code in a proprietary way in another yeah uh, enterprise of their own, but. It's to me. It's just just open it up. Like, yeah, exactly. It, it, if if you're, you know, you've got to have some thoughts about the people who have spent their hard earned money to buy your product. Now you failed for whatever reason. At least give them a chance to continue to use it. But this is not the first time this has happened. This yeah, is, yeah. Logitech was doing it in the beginning yeah. of the year. Um, I think that was our first episode of the year, right, Phil? When, uh, yeah. when we get, got back from Hades, it was... I think we were just basically reporting every episode, you know, something else is closed down. But unfortunately, it won't be the last one. I'm sure there'll yeah. be always yeah. another one that's going to shut down. Yeah. But I digress. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> that's the Soma uh, blind controllers. Uh, if you are lucky enough to have an IKEA... Uh, here we go, I'm going to try and pronounce this. Fire blind. Uh, for those lucky enough to have those, they are now supported uh, with the uh, native trad-free integration in Home Assistant. So they'll just come up as a cover if you have one of those. Uh, really cool. I really like the sleekness of the IKEA blinds. So I can't yeah. wait for them to launch in Australia. So some breaking changes. Uh, there's a few this release. So here's a couple of the highlights, but make sure you go through the release notes to actually figure out what's actually broken. Uh, so the deprecated integrations have now been removed. So if you remember in episode 55, we talked about components that use web scraping as a methodology to 
you know, get some information. So components like UPS and FedEx, those have been removed. So you probably could find them in the home assistant community stores still uh, if you need them. But it's just it's not a scalable way of building a component just because if somebody makes a change somewhere mm. on their website, now everything is broken. I, I, I do I do agree with moving away from those kind of uh, components. So but yeah, so all of those have been removed now. So, But yeah, they are in that community store, which is a good place for them, I think. Yep. Yep. It's use at your own risk. <laughs> exactly right. Uh, Rohan, I think this one might be uh, the effects you use. It could be. Am I correct? Yeah. Yeah. So it could be climate devices will now be set up from the user interface. So once again, this is where things are starting to looking forward to that version 1.0, where things are moving away from YAML and going back into the UI. So uh, existing users like yourself, Rohan, you shouldn't have to change anything. Your settings will actually be sucked in from your YAML and and just Ported ready to over. go. Yeah. yeah. But um, as part of the change, uh, any Echobee-specific services, uh, such as Echobee Resume Program, they're being moved away from the climate platform and they will instead be moved over to the Echobee platform. So you'll now call Echobee.Resume Program. Uh, so once again, we just have to go through and update any service calls as the usual story goes. Yeah, which makes sense because uh, the climate should be more generic uh, instead of specific exactly. to Echobee. So, all right, well, that's a uh, that's good, good thing. I don't have to do any work around it um, for the first part, at least. Yeah. Uh, transmission download client. So that's also moving to the UI. So if you use transmission to download torrents and such, now uh, that integration will be moved into the UI. So you don't need to do any uh, YAML config, similar to what Phil talked about with the Echobee. And if you've got your monitored conditions flag set today, so if you're using this uh, integration and uh, you've got the monitored condition flag set up, then uh, you'll need to remove it. Basically, it'll suck in all of the sensors and switches that that this creates. And in other interesting updates uh, and on the same sort of path plex can now also be set up via the user interface so previously you would have to get some tokens and all that via the config flow and all that uh now you can just go into the integrations menu uh there's no breaking changes for the plex though so if you already have plex integrated today when you upgrade to 0.100 it should just keep working so i think what we're taking away from 0.100 is a lot of uh things are moving over into that integrations menu and i think this is the first time we're seeing non-device specific integrations moving over through, for example, Plex and Transmission, which are generally, you know, software-based. Previously, it was, you know, like your hardware devices like Hue and everything moving over to that integrations tab. But now we're actually starting to see a lot of, you know, the cool stuff that, you know, well, I think it's cool, not just hardware-based, but the existing software-based come into that integrations menu, which is awesome. Yeah, no, that's that definitely is uh, interesting. And, Again, as we move towards 1.0, that's uh, that's something that has to happen, right? You can't have yeah. everybody going and editing YAML and things like that just because of varying levels of knowledge around how to do YAML, right? So uh, the ZHA integration now supports sirens and warning devices. I think I think there's no real description required for that one, um, no. but, uh, but that's pretty straightforward. But it's interesting. So if you have any uh, Zigbee stuff, around sirens and i'm not exactly sure what counts as a warning device but i know yeah maybe like a co2 sensor or a smoke sensor maybe 
Maybe, yeah. So, yeah, because it does have an alarm, right? So I guess that makes mm. sense. So, so if you've got those, then uh, you're in luck. And this is a pretty big update for people that rely on uh, template sensors and, you know, switches. You can now define an availability template in those switches and sensors or even devices. So Home Assistant has a great way of being able to mark a device as unavailable. So, for mm-hmm. example, if you're familiar with MQTT, uh, if, you know, MQTT has an availability topic and, you know, when a uh, server or something goes offline, the uh, last will message can go out and say, all right, I'm offline. Instead of removing those, you know, switches or just making them unresponsive in the UI, Home Assistant will show them as, you know, offline or unavailable. This didn't really translate down to if you were defining your own template switch, now or you know anything in a template sensor but now you have the ability to uh, create your own availability template and from there you can say all right if you know i'm getting a 404 response for example on this endpoint or the response you know that i've just got is you know 404 mark the sensor as unavailable and home assistant will just gray it out so it's available for all uh template platforms including lights fans covers you name it so a great little addition there. Awesome. Uh, Google Home devices can now arm and disarm the alarm panels within Home Assistant. So you'll need to have a voice pin set up just for security's sake. But yeah, you can now start talking to your Google Home to say, hey, lock your, or not lock your door, but arm the alarm and uh, and disarm and and i get i especially for disarming you got to be you know a big careful you don't you don't want to you don't want to yell one two three four if that's your pin um also don't make your pin one two three four (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and uh so you got to be cautious of kind of cognizant of who's around you as well right so so this is going to be great to enable you know like legacy alarm control panels that don't have voice enabled yeah so you know if you've got like that you know very old school you know maybe a, a panel on the wall that has an integration with home assistant but you know has no cloud connectivity or anything you can now use home assistant to bridge it and you know make it voice enabled so that's excellent yeah yeah all right uh we're there zero 100 uh i think even next week's because hacktoberfest is going to kick off it's going to be an even bigger uh release next week but just quickly while i remember it um speaking of zero 100 and you know home assistant 1.0 node red uh reached 1.0 status this week so Good on them. I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. All right, Tony. uh, Now we're going to quiz you about your very interesting setup. We've already heard uh, some cool things you've been doing, but I guess we'll just have to start off at the basics. Um, You know, this is the Home Assistant podcast. This is the Home Assistant podcast. So how did you get started with Home Assistant or how long have you been using Home Assistant for? I've been using um, Home Assistant full time for about 18 months. This is my second look at it. Mm-hmm. I'm very happy with it. Probably the major push towards going to Home Assistant was when I decided to go away from Z-Wave light controllers. Mm-hmm. Right. I was a little hesitant. Prior to Home Assistant, I was using uh, HomeSeer and it was very good with the Z-Wave devices. And my initial play with uh, Home Assistant, I was on a Pi and I just found it a little uh, dodgy, I guess is the, the best way I could put it. But the when I uh, decided to go away from Z-Wave, it opened up Home Assistant again for me, even though I... I'm a software developer. I don't know YAML from a yardstick, so (laughs) it 
it was a bit mm-hmm. of a uh, steep learning curve. So you mentioned you started, uh, you kind of used Homeseer before before Home Assistant. So what kind of caused you to move over from Homeseer to Home Assistant? Um, Rohan, it was more a case of unhappiness with my initial uh, Home Assistant uh, Z-Wave play was what caused me to stay yeah. with Homeseer. I owned a licensed copy of Homeseer. The full, it cost me oh, nearly a thousand Australian dollars. Wow. Mm, it's not cheap. And more and more of the plugins were now becoming paid for rather than open source or anything like that. Oh, interesting. That's what pushed me away from Homeseer. And yeah. I follow the uh, Dr. Z's YouTube channel. And uh, mm-hmm. he just makes it look so easy. And when I realised that Hass.io could have Node-RED and JavaScript, I know. So I sort of bit the bullet and, and jumped in. Awesome. Okay. Easter is just around the corner. And what better way to celebrate the spring season than with a Miki Couture blanket? Whether you're gathering with family for an Easter egg hunt or just enjoying a quiet day at home, Minky blankets are the perfect addition to your Easter festivities. Made with ultra soft and luxurious materials, these blankets will keep you cozy and comfortable, while their stylish designs will add a touch of spring to your day. And with a wide range of colors and patterns to choose from, there's a Minky blanket for everyone. So this Easter, make your day even brighter with a Minky Couture blanket. Head to MinkyCouture.com now and find your perfect blanket just in time for Easter. Happy Easter from Minky Couture. That makes sense. So that's that's uh, interesting. I didn't know that they were charging for components as well. So that's uh, a new home tier was a paid product, right? Yeah. So the, I believe the the main product is paid for, and then you know you you as a developer, so you and I, Rohan, could go out and create a plugin for Homesteer and then sell it ourselves. Yeah, it's similar to like an app store from from apple yeah yeah i guess that's that's interesting because i i always just assumed it was all kind of built in and whatever whatever you pay because for me it was the same thing i did at some point look at homesteer but it was pretty much right off the bat a non-starter because like you yep. said it's almost it was almost a grand or more than a grand at the time mm. and and they have a couple of different uh version levels and um i bought top of the line so i got the uh the tablet development software yeah. i got everything and there were a heap of uh, good quality plugins, but over the years, it just started to, they really started pushing the uh, the paid plugin route. Right. I think what's interesting is that you went from Homeseer, which I think even today is considered, you know, the gold standard when it comes to supporting uh, Z-Wave devices. Then you went to something as open source as Home Assistant, which you know, being open source, and this isn't a dig at home, it, it applies to anything that is uh, uses based on open source, you know, including uh, OpenHab and you know, Demotics and all that. The support for Z-Wave devices in open source is probably, you know, at the bottom. So you've gone from, you know, one of the top, you know, Z-Wave device, you know, software suppliers down to one of the bottom Z-Wave support. And obviously that'll get better in time. But yeah, I think part of your frustration with Z-Wave would be, from going from that big jump, I'm guessing because I still recommend Z-Wave and I, I still use Z-Wave because I think it's compared to Zigbee, it's much more reliable for me. What did you move over to? Like if you've stopped using Z-Wave, what protocols have you moved over to? 
Wi-Fi. Okay. I have 31 Wi-Fi controllers uh, in my house. These are mm-hmm. mains-powered light controllers. Uh, most of them are from Shelly, the Shelly 1s and Shelly 2s, but I mm-hmm. also have um, some, as I spoke before, some generic wall plugs and three um, Australian-approved dimmers that were two-year-based but are now... Um, Tasmoda based and they're the only of my mains powered Wi-Fi devices that are Tasmoda based. I kept with the Shelleys I kept with their software. For a couple of reasons they uh, they once they bought out MQTT there was no reason to uh, for me to go to uh, Tasmoda. Right. So for me I, and I've, I've said this on the podcast many a time and I still believe it today I find that having a Wi-Fi device, sure, it's good at a consumer level, being able to ease of use to, to set it up and all that for, you know, get just getting on the Wi-Fi network. But the last thing I want is, you know, my Netflix downloads being slow because my, I'm turning off a light switch or something like that. Do you find, and, and having so many devices now on your Wi-Fi spectrum, do you have any issues having that many devices communicating around your home? Zero issues. The um, uh, because it's basically telemetry data. Um, if you're turning your light mm-hmm. off, the tiny little packet of data wouldn't even drop two frames of Netflix. When you're using right. MQTT, which is TCP based, the TCP packet header is probably twice the size of the payload you're sending. Right. And in terms of the sheer number of devices, I know I personally had, you know, this standard run-of-the-mill ISP-provided router, and once I got to maybe 30 Wi-Fi devices around the home, that's it. Like, the network just shut down. I had to get a yeah. better router. Do you find that being an issue as well? No, I'm, I've got a bit of a reputation for um, overdoing everything. <laughs> I have, um, uh, for you, Phil, it is a single-storey, 270-square-metre brick house with wooden frame mm-hmm. and plasterboard. For you, Rohan, it's probably 27, 2,800 square feet. All right. And I have three ubiquity access points. Right, and that's, that's what makes a difference when you have better coverage and things like that with multiple... APs, right? So that's right. And when you consider the um, my little uh, Wi-Fi door sensors that I develop, when they do a Wi-Fi scan sitting on my desk, which is at one corner of the house, it can pick up all three uh, of those access points. Right. I, I do think that a lot of the issues people have with Wi-Fi can't does sorry does come down to their equipment and their setup um, and also because I'm using MQTT and not a cloud-based service none of my data leaves the house so that exponentially improves performance so in terms of uh, so you're using MQTT in terms of you know like ease of setup obviously you know you have the you know the knowledge and all that on how to set up MQTT and set up all those devices. Do you think? And I'm not talking like specifically just you know us like around the the table here today. You know we can clearly handle this. But do you think uh, big picture? You know smart home in the future for everyone. Do you think you know having to set up you know MQTT brokers locally and all that for a smart home is viable for? the run-of-the-mill house? Uh, yes and no. Um, 
I think uh, if you can't find it on Google or YouTube, you're really not trying. <laughs> but I, I do think that um, uh, for a lot of people, cloud-based services, even cloud-based MQTT services could be used. It's um, You don't have to use MQTT. You don't have to use Docker or, or a Pi. You can still do it all cloud-based. But uh, I just don't because I don't want stuff leaving my house. Yeah. Yeah. So all my, uh, uh, the three Tasmoto devices, um, well, technically there's 10 Tasmoto devices if you count wall plugs. Um, I update them manually, but running the Shelly devices where they uh, bring updates out every now and then. I also have a Ubiquiti router, which I have all my Wi-Fi devices running on their own VLAN. And that VLAN is prevented from going to the outside world. If I want a device to go to the outside world to get an update, I just unlock that VLAN, tell them all to update, and then relock the VLAN. Okay, so you've got it, yeah, properly secured. Yeah, well, you know, there's, I don't think there's any such thing as properly secured, but uh, if somebody wants to get in there, um, they're going to get in. They'll find a way. Yeah. 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 So, so what else? Uh, what else are you running? So, you mentioned uh, the Shelleys. Um, you know, you're running a couple of things with Tasmoda. What else? Uh, what else do you got? I've got, uh, as I we spoke about before we started recording, I've got door sensors and remote controls, which are Wi-Fi based, but they don't connect to the network. They use uh, the 802.11 management action frames, which are packets that. Wi-Fi devices will pass around each other to um, just to advertise what's going on. For example, when you fire up your access point or your router, they will use these packets to see if, if there's anybody close by on channel one. Yeah. And if it is, it'll then try channel six, it'll then try channel 11, it'll then try channel two. And that's how your Wi-Fi access points and routers know to select the best channel so these packets um, don't require any authentication they are unsecure but it's up to the receiver the receiver which is just another esp wi-fi chip which is authenticated to the network it does post-processing when it receives the packet to confirm that it's a an allowable uh, packet and then it just gets uh in my case, the packet contains an MQTT topic and an MQTT payload, and uh, the receiver just throws it into the network. Is there a restriction on the amount of data you can send over that protocol? Like, for example, could you send like an encryption key or could you make all that data encrypted as a really long string and then decrypt it? Yes, the um, uh, you are... Restricted to about 200 bytes per transmission, but you're not restricted in the number of mm -hmm. uh, transmissions you have. I'm currently redesigning my code that the receiver and the um, sensor will have a, rather than an encryption key, it'll have what's called a network identifier key. And it'll be hard programmed into both chips. And when the receiver receives the packet, the the first thing it'll do is decode the data. The data has to be of the right format, and then it has to read this network identifier. And if it doesn't match, it just dumps the packet. 
Now, the management action frames can also be encrypted as well as the chips can encrypt post and pre, sorry, P and post, encrypt and decrypt the data. So there are ways to secure it, but you are still relying on the fact that if you suspect, even if you send a packet to a specific ESP chip, every ESP chip on that network is going to receive that packet. Right. Okay. So it's sort of like just sending out a broadcast and then it has to decide what data do I want to ignore and what do I want to focus on? Exactly. In fact, you can, um, rather than you have to, in the in the sensor, has to register a the receiver's MAC address, but you can actually send it just all Fs and it'll send it broadcast and every, every device will, will process that incoming packet. Okay. Interesting. So... Other things I have do is I have a eight-zone ducted air conditioning system Mm -hmm. that is connected uh, through both Node-RED and Home Assistant, although I updated to the latest version of Home Assistant and it broke it. I can turn the AC off, but I can't turn it on. Interesting. Why would you want to turn it on? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the MQTT from Node Red works fine to turn it on. So yes, it's just something I need to um, look at. I have one lonely LifeX bulb, and it was bought for testing, but because I'd planned to, the golden grail of um, Wi-Fi controllers seems to be dimming and fan control, and these and with LifeX you can buy actual downlights that already have dimming in them, although they're $90 a piece. Yeah, they're not cheap. Which I would need 10 to do my house. Yep. So I have one Zigbee device. It's a Yale door lock. It took me probably 12 months to weekend to go to a, back to a protocol like Zigbee, but I have no intentions on – I am going to get another lock, but that'll be it. Yeah, Interesting. Okay. I do. Uh, one of the questions I, that you always ask is about presence. Yes. That, that, that's our favorite topic. We love that question because everyone has a unique setup. Yeah. Yeah. So I use Bluetooth beacons to do vehicle presence. So. Okay. What sort of beacons? Uh, I started off with the Estimote beacons and this mm-hmm. was, um, two, early 2015. And they've worked flawlessly, uh, but I have replaced it with some um, Bluetooth 5 beacons and a dedicated Bluetooth 5 receiver rather than trying to use a Pi or uh, an ESP. This is a dedicated uh, receiver. And um, it now, they claim 200 metres range, which is rubbish, but it definitely, before my car hits my property, the Mm -hmm. lights are on and my door is unlocked. Wow. Okay. So I'm guessing you must have some pretty robust automations in there so that uh, for whatever, so let's say Home Assistant decides to restart at 3 a.m. and then decides, okay, your car's just got home. It doesn't automatically unlock the door then. Uh, no, that's correct. Yeah. And, and um, I have two automations in, and I probably shouldn't say this being the home automation uh, podcast and all, but I only have two automations in Home Assistant. One is to do backup and the other is to tell Node Red that it's that it's come alive. Wait, so you mean you only have two automations set up in Home Assistant? Yeah, sorry about that. You, you, you know you're on the Home Assistant podcast, Tony. Like, <laughs> we have an eligibility criteria. We're like, oh, you could have told us that earlier. 
So I'm guessing you must do most of your stuff then in Node Red. Oh, you should see my Node Red flows. They are ugly. They're attached. Oh, I yeah, lines yeah. and links, and um, I run everything in Docker. I have a little um, Asus uh, embedded PC. Yep, and I, it runs Home Assistant, it runs uh, Node Red, and it runs Mosquito. But I couldn't get it to run. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. uh, Zigbee to MQTT. It's through Docker. Yeah, interesting. Uh, that's yeah. I'm running Zigbee to MQTT via Docker, no problem at all. Yeah, but the uh, um, I have a you know, a game with the overkill. I've got a Raspberry Pi four with four gig of RAM and a hundred and twenty eight gigabyte SD card running uh, Zigbee to MQTT. <laughs> nice. The the Bluetooth stuff is, has been really reliable. We do have an issue with. One of the cars which parks in the carport every now and then, it'll register as gone when it's not. But the the new Bluetooth 5 uh, beacons will um, solve that issue. Mm-hmm. Do you do presence just based on the cars or do you have any, like, do you use your phones or anything like that as a secondary presence? Like, what if you've got a car that's in for a service for a week? Does that mean the home will never know your home? At this stage, yes, but I am uh, about to have Ubiquity monitor my phone and the housemate's phone so, so that when I, right. mm-hmm. he's on days off and I go to work in the morning, it doesn't lock him out of the house. <laughs> right, yeah, right, right. It's instant. Once it's, I've got it set to – so there's no in-home assistant, the um, – the binary sensor that I have for home or away for each car, there is no uh, off per se. The beacon system just keeps sending, I'm home, I'm home, I'm home. And then if home assistant doesn't receive it for X amount of time, it flags uh, the vehicles as being away and it it does the appropriate action. Now, for the estimated beacons, I've got it. Right. It sends uh, the beacon send every two seconds. I've got a home assistant um, set to two minutes, and the outside vehicle does occasionally register a false away. With the uh, mm-hmm. the new Bluetooth five beacons, I've got mine set to fifteen seconds, and it's never registered a false away. So I pull out of the driveway in the morning, and by the time I get up to the uh, roundabout up the road, the house is locked and all the lights in my bedroom have been turned off. Okay, that's wow. pretty good. That's very reliable then. Yeah, it is very good. Um, other automations I have um, are based around my little remote controls in the uh, TV room. I've got one that I press uh, when I'm going to bed and it turns the lights on the kitchen, the hallway and my bedroom. And then a couple of minutes later, the kitchen and hallway lights turn off. I've got one that's marked on the remote need to pee. You can probably guess what that's for. Uh, it uh, lights the way up to the bathroom and then uh, you head to the game and you come back and it turns all the lights off. That's great. So a couple of questions I've got uh, for you guys, just for your thoughts. Sure. And then a lot of it revolves around the Wi-Fi congestion issue. Do you think with more and more devices like iPhones and tablets going to 5 gigahertz that it's going to start alleviating some of the issues with the 2.4 gigahertz? 
congestion? Well, yes. Um, so five gig, I mean, by its nature, again, depends on how many access points you have, depends on what's all that kind of stuff. But two, four is pretty busy to start with, right? There's a ton of stuff that runs in 2.4. So Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, um, there's a lot of microwaves that leak at 2.4, just th- that kind of stuff, right? There, there's a lot of things that can, there's a lot more things that can interfere. 5.0 has its own interference challenges as, as well, but it's uh, typically it's a lot less, right? And just with that higher bandwidth too, you can get, you can do some other interesting things like a little faster, not faster, but theoretically faster. But also, five gigahertz now means it's a less. Uh, it travels a. It travels a lot less. So, meaning if you have a massive house, or if you have a, if you're trying to do outside and all that stuff as well, you got to be. You got. You you may have a little more range issues than with two four, right? And then it's got worse penetration through walls and so on and so forth. Now, there's a an advantage to that as well. There's less chance you're going to cut something from your neighbors. Yep. Yep, exactly, right? So personally, I, I I use a technology called band steering at home. So which is if your device supports both 2.4 and 5, and if it does connect on 2.4, it'll actually steer it towards 5 gigahertz, right? So so I prefer most of my devices being on 5 gigahertz myself. Yeah, pretty much our smartphones are the only things that are on uh, 5 gigahertz here. I'm not sure about I've got two Roku Premiers. I'm not sure what they're on. And I'm really, right. I rushed into buying them and I really disin, disappointed that I that I didn't realize that they were Wi-Fi only. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's amazing. I have 40 Wi-Fi devices, a great Wi-Fi network, and I hate Wi-Fi. <laughs> I hate it with a passion. It's, got, it's a necessary evil, but when I built yep. the, the current house I'm in, I built it from scratch, and when well, I had it built, wow. I should say. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So when the house was had the roof on and was at frame stage, a mate of mine came over and we went nuts with the Cat Six. Yes, I got thirty five uh, Category Six enabled jacks in my house. Wow. So nothing beats wide as far as I'm concerned. Sure. Are you utilizing all that Cat 6 or have you got spare runs that oh, you can no. use in the future? I'm only utilizing probably 10 of them, but they're there. Mm-hmm. I'd planned for the NBN, and so each bedroom has at least two jacks, one for a computer and one for a, a VoIP-enabled phone. Yep. The office has 10. My bedroom has six. The media room has seven, um, and there's others spread around in the lounge room and in the kitchen. Um, although, I, with that being said, I did drop one recently because I, in the kitchen, I had a uh, two jacks above the microwave, um, and I removed that wall plate and, and have one of the ubiquity access points is a wall-mounted or wall plate-style access point. I wanted to talk about your last podcast with the gentleman building the tiny house. Mm-hmm. Mm. When I went Wi-Fi, I'm also uh, part of the Shelly QA uh, team. So they send us, uh, we don't get paid or anything, but they send us pre-release products that we stress test and, and report any bugs. Right. Oh, that's cool. And they've got quite a few low-voltage stuff, 24 volts. So their Shelly 1, which can be mains-powered or it can be 24-volt DC, um, and the same with their uh, 
I believe they they have an RGB dimmer that can run on low voltage. So oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And so, are these products that they're currently testing? So not out on the market yet. No, they're released. Well, the Shelly one's been yeah. out. Shelly one was their first. The first thing they released in the lighting controller range. The uh, right. yeah, no, definitely they they are released. Um, they this company is fairly quick to market with their stuff. They're developing uh, more and more products all the time. Sure, sure. So there's a couple of other things I wanted to discuss, and I think we we covered a bit of this. And, I, and I'm just wondering how much of a threat Wi-Fi and Bluetooth is to Zigbee and Z-Wave. I, I don't think it's much of a threat at this stage to uh, Zigbee, but I think Z-Wave's no, uh, days are numbered. I know you didn't want to hear that, Phil. but I know, I don't. To say, you know, like Z-Wave and, and Zigbee, I don't think Wi-Fi is much of a threat because don't forget recently no. um, Google was uh, talking about bringing out, I think it was called Weave as an, another protocol because they've seen a need for a universal protocol that is not Wi-Fi based um, that allows, you know, small devices like IoT devices and sensors to communicate. And I think Wi-Fi's Achilles heel at the moment is battery uh, devices. So you won't have any battery devices like, you know, a wireless temperature sensor or a door sensor because they consume so much power have to connect to the network and you know and for that network radio that's where i think the strength of z-wave and zigbee radios lie because they can be battery operated and not have to be touched for you know months and years in some circumstances yeah bluetooth could take over the um the battery operated side of it but that being said my uh the wall mounted six button sensor i showed you before that got installed last uh, September with a 500 milliamp LiFo battery and it's still going strong. I just it's the only one I had assembled, so I had to pull it out to show you. Mm. The, I think the biggest problem with Wi-Fi for sensors is timing. Is that it's fine for a temperature sensor or a uh, water sensor, something where taking three to five seconds for it to uh, connect to a network isn't really that important but if you've got a door sensor yeah or a motion sensor yeah and you're halfway across the room before it registers or even more interesting if it's a door sensor and you've managed to open the door and close the door before it's registered the door open Mm -hmm. that's where that's another area where wi-fi struggles but for mains-powered mm. stuff, I think Wi-Fi is a big threat. Well, so so the other the other side of this too is you got to look at the meshing as well, right? So whether it's how do you how do you actually build a network that you're not used for? So okay, so this is there's two thoughts in my head. One is Wi-Fi is great for sending a bunch of data, right? When it's a little short bursts of data. Again, nothing wrong with Wi-Fi, but I think I think Zigbee Z-Wave are more kind of optimized for that. Just even mm. protocol level, I think they're a lot more efficient in that sense. Uh, whereas Wi-Fi is really meant for sending larger amounts of traffic. And on the other side of it too, um, from a mesh perspective, the one thing you got to worry about Wi-Fi is well, you, you have to worry about it everywhere, but is your um, is your actual coverage holds and things like that. So, hey, do I have a uh, slightly lacking 
Um, actually, what's worse than having no coverage is having little coverage in a spot uh, because it's just enough for you to connect, but maybe your device can't talk loud enough or, or whatever that is, mm-hmm. right? And so in this case now, that's where something that meshes, so something that acts as a repeater as well every time, I think can add uh, quite a bit of uh, assistance, especially again, you're not you're not transferring files or anything like that through Zigbee, Z-Wave, those kind of protocols. You're just saying, hey, open, hey, close, which is typically a one yeah. or a zero or so, or so, something of that sort, right? Yeah, but there's, there's always more information than that. There's identifying information. But you're right. You're absolutely right. And uh, the one thing where Z-Wave has the advantage over even Zigbee is that it's sub one gigahertz, so it's got greater penetration. Yeah. But talking about... Uh, meshing, that was why I, I walked away from Z-Wave. Once they started bringing out uh, Gen 5 stuff with the tighter security, mm-hmm. which is great, my Gen 1.0.0.0 devices had trouble. They would drop off. They wouldn't talk to each other. They they'd ha- constantly had to be repaired. I even went to the point of pulling out my old uh, Vera original version device and set my uh, version one uh, devices up on their own Z-Wave network and they work flawlessly. Mm, agreed. So you could, you could, I would argue that you could say the same thing about Wi-Fi as well as, as you go through different technologies. So, I mean, now we're on what, what they call Wi-Fi 6, which is um, the, the protocol level name is called 802.11ax. Before that you had, uh, you know, you you went we went through all these iterations b g a n yeah a c a c wave one a c wave two and then now a x right so and yeah a lot of it is reverse compatible but not always right or sometimes like for for example if you have first gen wi fi stuff you again just in, in the nature of what i do um best practice for wi fi is to actually uh, disable a lot of those lower data rates, which are part of B and uh, and so on. So th- there can be compatibility issues. I just I, th- I think maybe it's a matter of Zigbee and Z-Wave are evolving a lot faster, which is causing more of those issues. And 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 to your point, maybe maybe that's I, I don't disagree with what you're saying. I ju- I think there's just again it's it's an evolution. It's a faster evolution versus a less compatible standard, right? If that makes any sense. It makes a lot of sense. One question I would like to ask both the inventors, for want of a better term, of Z-Wave and Zigbee is what would you do differently? And I would wonder if Z-Wave would continue at the sub-gigahertz level because of the frequency issues they're having with trying to sell products all over the world. Yeah. We can't use American uh devices because it's too close to our some of our cell phone frequencies interesting yeah so i can remember back in 2010 or 2011 when your economy was tanking and ours was booming and we were getting a dollar 10 to your dollar i could buy an american z-way door sensor for 25 30 dollars the same thing here was 130 dollars now they have come down in price but nothing... Uh, yeah, yeah. Normalizes itself, right? Yeah, nothing like your economy of scale. Yeah. Another one thing, a couple of things I uh, want to start playing with is LoRaWAN. 
for getting telemetry over great distances. Mm, yeah. And um, NBIoT, uh, the cellular uh, IoT stuff. Now, I can find lots of um, devices here in Australia, but I can't find anyone that uh, sells plans and can sign you up. Hmm, the, that's uh, interesting. Yeah, so I, I think that's um, uh, that's going to have uh, teeth for telemetry and uh, different different applications. We had a thing here uh, a few years ago when they turned off uh, 2G. Basically, the big telcos here just said, well, all our customers and now all our cell phones are now off 2G. We'll just turn it off. And the the amount of alarm systems they, they that killed was yep. phenomenal because everybody's still using 2G for, sure. yes, my alarm is enabled, no, my alarm is disabled, or somebody's cut the power cable, um, you better send somebody to have a look. Yeah, yeah, because nobody really updates your alarm panels, things like that. Once it's in, it's in, right, for the most part. and then Exactly, and it's like with the, uh, um, our wonderful NBN system here in Australia for our broadband network, they didn't take into account so many things when they when they designed it. Uh, one of them is taxi companies here in Australia at a pub or a restaurant will put in a free phone. Yep. Now, the the fight they have because the the taxi company owns the service, but they have no um, ownership or access to uh, the site. It's you know. It's like me running a service at Phil's place. Yeah, yeah. Um, one thing I would say about the uh, the Wi-Fi uh, sort of protocols and stuff, and and Rohan, maybe you'd be able to, you'd know more being in Cisco. Um, a lot of devices that we have for IoT now, you know, are required on that you know two G spectrum. But as Wi-Fi is sort of you know consumer grade, it's not really designed or you know thinking of smart homes in general. Mm-hmm. Do you see, uh, you know, smart like, you know, eventually, you know, routers taking away that two gigahertz network and then, you know, all these IoT devices are being left out in the cold because, you know, technology has moved on and that 2G network is no longer supported? No, I think I think one of the things is uh, so. So actually, if you look at the newer standards, they actually incorporate uh, 2.4 back in. Oh, really? Uh, OK, I didn't know that. Yeah, but but there, there's the bigger problem of people have a lot of legacy stuff and mm-hmm. manufacturers want to cater to that. Even if you look, and, and one of my biggest issues is IoT devices today still use a ton of 2.4 gigahertz only yep, yep. radios. So uh, the ESP8266 is a perfect example, right? Exactly. That's what I'm thinking, yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, if they take it off, a lot of stuff will break. Uh, but but I, I, don't, I, I don't see, even if we were to go pure 5G everywhere, and I know there are wireless networks. Uh, I, I've talked to customers that run only 5G, but... You know, that that does break a lot of stuff. So I I don't see, at at least in the home space, uh, I don't see vendors doing that anytime soon. Mm -hmm. Um, And and, and the the newer protocols are dictating that as well. So Right. Okay. All right. Well, I think that is, yeah, you have an amazing setup, Tony. So thank you for coming on, sharing your thoughts and, and your setup. I'm glad that you've come back to Home Assistant from Home Zero after giving Home Assistant another shot. And I don't want to see your Node Red flows. I, as a software developer, I I've never been able to get into Node Red myself, so I can only imagine how messy it's going to be running everything through Node Red. So good luck with that. But 
yeah thank you so much for taking the time no worries thank you thanks a lot cheers cheers if you want to share your home assistant journey or come on as a guest reach out to us at feedback at haspodcast.io that's h-a-s-s podcast.io The Home Assistant Podcast is hosted by Phil Hawthorne and myself, Rohan Karamandi. For links to topics that we discussed today, check out our show notes on haspodcast.io.